Our Father, we thank you for reminding us. Thank you for reminding us that uh, you are the one who is sovereign, not we ourselves. And uh, therefore, when we come to you in thanksgiving and prayer, we come to you with thanksgiving first, for you are working all things together for our good. And though in this life uh, there may be many disappointments, many trials, burdens come and go, but the burden is lightened, Father, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So, Father, thank you for your grace through our Lord Jesus and all that he's accomplished in his finished work on Calvary's cross. Thank you that we have opportunity to gather this morning to open that word together, and I pray that it would be a great blessing to us as that you give us understanding and that we would receive discernment then each step of each day as we uh, seek, Father, to honor you in all things. Father, I thank you that, uh, that Charlie is able to have the, these rounds of, of uh, radiation. I pray that uh, that would be a benefit to him physically, Father. And, Father, I just thank you so much for Linda and her willingness to sacrifice as she is to provide the transportation and to provide the support and the fellowship uh, as this proceeds. And I pray, Father, that there might be blessings, therefore, tomorrow as uh, Linda takes Charlie down to Concord. Please give them safety as well. Father, please bless... uh, Tom and myself as we travel today and uh, bless our time together and also uh, just Father we pray that you'd be exalted in our midst may we have safe travel back and forth and uh, please continue to remind us of who we truly are in our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, may we be always in tune, Father, with uh, the guiding and the leading of our our precious Lord and of the Spirit as we meet together. And we'll give you thanks, Father. And for a few, Father, that we're specifically praying for with, with unspoken requests, Father, I pray that your will would be accomplished there. Father, I pray for our president and uh, those that serve with him as they try to lead this country, not in the direction it's been going for so long, but in a direction, Father, that we believe is in accord with your will and purpose. So, Father, I pray that they would be encouraged, strengthened, and though the enemies are on every side and great and bold and seem to us powerful, Father, I I just pray that... Uh, your enemies would be defeated in this nation. And please keep those that desire to serve properly, whether it's in federal, state, or local government, I pray, Father, that they would be enabled, that they'd be successful, and they that they'd be protected. Thank you, Father, now for the word as we open it together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we continue today 
with this great, great subject that's been set for us, set forth for us uh, in Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we'll be reading uh, those verses again right at the beginning. Uh, and then I'll give us a little uh, review uh, before we jump into our subject for today. But we're continuing the subject of last week. The title last week was That Mind Which Is Above All Minds. That Mind Which Is Above All Minds. And, of course, that is the mind of Christ Jesus, as Paul writes of it there in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 and following. Okay, so we'll be reading that now just to begin with. I think uh, that verse, chapter 2, verse 5, this great exhortation is a good place for us to start. So, Lisa, would you please read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 for us? Yes. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lisa. Well, from that exhortation, even before Paul explains it further in the verses that follow, very clearly this has to be one of the greatest exhortations in the entire Bible. Surely, since it's based on the greatest work of all, right, uh, and refers ultimately to it. So the greatest um work of all, of course, is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation and in his uh, sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. That's a redemptive work, as we all have come to know, right? Uh, and his glorious resurrection was the culmination of that work here on this earth at that time. However, as we uh, have learned over the last months, there's much yet to be accomplished before the full plan of God is brought to its completion, uh, prophetically speaking, right? I mean, it'll never be brought totally to its completion because of the eternal uh, nature of that work. But uh, at least on this earth, uh, in terms of righting the wrongs, uh, as it were, that were accomplished by Lucifer, who became Satan, of course, in his rebellion. And then as he influenced Adam, right? And uh, then as that uh, influenced the entire human race. And then as Satan sought over the long war against God to conflict with and to defeat the plan of God uh, in every uh, way that he could, right? And that continues today. The long war against God, of course, continues. Satan isn't sleeping. He's very, very active. But he always works in accordance with what God is doing, and that's what we've been learning over the last few years, right? So God today is manifesting forth the abundance of his grace, so expecting, expect Satan to be attempting to defeat that uh, uh, every chance he has. Uh Patty, would you please uh, continue on and read now out of Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 through 8. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Okay, thank you. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Well, verse 6 starts out there with the word who, who. Of course, this is Christ Jesus right here in his pre-incarnate circumstance there. uh, Before the incarnation has begun, says who being in the form of God. Well, we looked at those words last time, and um, they led us directly to Hebrews chapter 10. I don't want you to forget this because this is so important for our understanding. But in Hebrews chapter 10, which is really what Paul here is referring indirectly to, right? Hebrews chapter 10, at least he's referring to what Hebrews 10 is referring to, which is Psalm 40. And you saw that from our last time together, right? But in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Wherefore? When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So there the author of the Hebrews letter uh, quotes from Psalm 40 and just two verses in Psalm 40 are what he's quoting there. I'll read those again. Psalm 40 verses 7 and 8. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. And then verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is written in my heart. Okay, so that's uh, what was happening in uh, heaven's glory at that time. So uh, it was time for that part of that heavenly book's um, plan to be executed. It was time for our Lord Jesus, who was pre-incarnate then, to offer himself as a human, to become humanity, to take upon himself human flesh, but without sin, of course, right? It's critical to realize that. In other words, to be born of woman, uh, but not to inherit uh, the sin of Adam. So Adam was uh, not the source of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ at all, right? It was only through uh, the seed of the woman, uh, in other words, right, of Mary, with the Holy Spirit's great work there. Now, this will referred to here, remember, he says, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. So that will 
It's the very well that had been referred to in Hebrews chapter 10. And that gets at the heart of the matter that we're looking at here. Because what is that will that Christ had while in heaven's glory still, even b before the incarnation began? It was the coordinated will of our Lord Jesus Christ with God the Father's will. Okay, they were totally one in this regard. And therefore, since the heavenly time, as it were, had come, uh, Christ, uh, the pre-incarnate, uh, now willingly offered himself, becoming what? Embryonic, as it were, because the incarnation didn't begin at his birth at all, but began nine months previous, right? Okay, I think this has been clearly discussed already here. Okay, so the mind <clears throat> that was in Christ Jesus, as we've seen uh, in our last studies, is the same uh, mind that uh, now Paul is referring to here when he exhorts the Philippian believers. Dissertation okay. here in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that refers back to at the point of, you can't say time exactly, it's heavenly time, right? Which will coordinate with earthly time once the incarnation occurs, right? Okay, so really it's entering into human time that we're talking about here for the Son of God. Now, he had already been at work as the pre-incarnate Son uh, in many ways. It's not as if he never intersected with humanity, but never this way, right? Uh, this is the premier uh, intersection, indeed, with humankind. Okay, so the exhortation is for believers to do what Christ did. We're not talking about his earthly ministry at all. We're, we're talking about leaving heaven's glory, right, to come to this earth as, first of all, uh, embryonic form in Mary's womb and then ultimately the birth and then the growth and development and then finally he will begin his earthly ministry and that will lead as we uh, have just read to the death of the cross and of course then finally the glorious resurrection we saw last time what the capstone teaching was we looked at Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 we're going to Read that now again. I'll ask Linda to read it uh, because that's going to sort of set the stage for our study today in a certain way. At least we're going to end up with a focus on that. Linda, would you please read Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11? Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Linda. So there we see the full consequences of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So <clears throat> his incarnation led to his sacrificial death, and ultimately glorious resurrection, right? And then he ascended into heaven's glory and, and even now still is seated at the right hand 
of God the Father. But of course, prophecy indicates so clearly that he will return to fulfill the final chapter of, of the prophetic record, right? And that's going to involve, as Linda just read for us here, uh, far more, really, even than uh, the redemptive purpose of God. So the full consequence of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection will go beyond the redemption of sinners alone, although for, uh, for us and from our point of view, that would be... <laughs> Sufficient, right? <laughs> I mean, to be redeemed from sin and the penalty of sin eternally. What well, could be better than this, right? However, there's more to the story, and it has to do with Satan. It has to do with his servants. They must be judged and must be judged eternally. It has to do with sinners who have never... Uh, as Paul wrote of it, never bowed the knee uh, and, in fact, shake their fists still. And even at the moment of death, do so, even when they know better or should. They've heard the truth, but still reject it. In so doing, reject the very love of Almighty God through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And reject the free gift that's been offered so, so much more needs to be accomplished to right every wrong, to cancel every sin to con to in, in some way or other, right? And to cancel um, the death that comes from uh, sin and its rebellion, right? And that finally, uh, as chapter 2, verse 9 says, and verses 10 and 11 make so clear, clear that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will yet occur, Paul is prophesying right here, right? Okay, now it doesn't say everyone's going to be saved, <laughs> Don't, don't try to twist the words like that. It says all will confess, all will bow the knee, okay? Uh, everything. This includes Satan himself, by the way, and every demon, right? So that will be accomplished. Uh, how their wills, wills, wills <laughs> will be so changed that they uh, confess the name of Christ, we do not know. The powers of God are far greater than we can imagine, right? And they will therefore recognize that their place in the lake of fire is the right place in the end for them. Okay, so now we know what the mind of Christ was. Now I want us to look uh, at this a little more closely because there are some details that are very important. And... Uh, what, what we'll see is that um, there's a principle at work. First, the suffering, then the glory is, is really the principle. And that's, that's true not only for Christ, first the suffering, then the glory, not only true of Christ, but also true for you and for me. We shall be glorified together with him. And considering that, 
um, and we're going to see today how this all fits together so perfectly in Paul's letter. Considering that, what are we willing to do? Will Christ's mind be ours? That's always the important question here when we read these scriptures. He says, let this mind be in you. Well, will it be? That's clearly in some sense optional for us. It's not optional if we want to glorify God, but we may be believers and still not be willing to each moment of each day, and surely none of us are perfectly willing to let Christ's mind be ours in the sense revealed here in God's word. Today what we're doing now is to look at the seven degrees of emptying emptying of the Son of God. When Christ was in heaven's glory, glory, he was not emptied at all. He was filled to overflowing with the glory of God and the full revelation of that. Okay. But then when he came into uh, humanity in the incarnation, he emptied himself of so, so very much. There are seven degrees of that emptying revealed here. First of all, I want to look at the beginning of it all. Then I want to look at these these seven degrees uh, defined, the seven degrees of his emptying as he came into the uh, uh, <clears throat> into the world, and then the seven degrees rewarded. Christ gave up so much, and the sevens are, are critical here because that's the number of completion, right? So he gave up so much. But what he got back <laughs> was so much more, okay, than what he gave up, right? What he received back. And so the rewards proved to be very significant, not only for him, but we're, as we're going to see, also for us, okay? The seven degrees rewarded for him and for us. It's like going to college seven times and getting seven degrees in other words <laughs> each one in a sense more than that is which has gone before but that one is built upon the other so closely and carefully okay so first of all philippians chapter 2 verse 6 um, introduces this he says who being in the form of god thought it not robbery to be equal with god being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Um, now, there is a verse uh, which I would like uh, Patty to read for us from John's Gospel. Uh, John's Gospel uh, at the very beginning of it, and uh, many of you believers have sort of started out in your study of God's Word right here. In fact, I think I did, if I remember carefully, uh, at least at one point I certainly did, <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 1. Patty, would you please read that for us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so uh, this is a summary statement. talking about the story, what was happening before the incarnation. 
Well, all the way back, it says even in the beginning. <laughs> I think the beginning here refers to the beginning in the what's been called the the decree of God, or we're we're talking about the volume of the book. Remember the heavenly book? We we looked uh, into that a bit before, right? Uh, surely there was no beginning for God, right? But there was a beginning when you look at this redemptive plan and its ultimate uh, manifestation, right? So once there was a decision to create, and as part of that, the decision to create Adam, okay, then there was a plan that had much detail that had to do with how that was all going to go, right? So once the Lord God and, and the three persons together had made that decision, then these were written in the book, right? So then it's recorded there how this is going to go. Okay, so uh, what John is doing here, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this is going to change uh, to some degree, but not entirely, right? Because once the incarnation has been brought, brought to pass, then so much of what the pre-incarnate Son of God had in heaven's glory will have been given up for a time, right? I'm going to read from just 13 verses down from verse 1. In other words, verse 14 of John chapter 1, and you'll see that. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So yes, much was given up in the great emptying that we were talking about, right? Once the incarnation occurred, there was this great emptying. Much was given up. But not everything. Okay, it says here, Apostle John says, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you might wonder when it was that he beheld the glory, because it seems that at least there, so much more was being revealed uh, to him, an apostle, and to the other apostles, perhaps, than what had been seen by so many. And did Caesar see this? Did uh, Herod, you know, and so forth and so on? They didn't, right? Uh, but a special revelation was given. It's like heaven was opened up and they could see into uh, the plan of God uh, in a special way at that time. There was the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, you recall, right? Um Okay, so there, there we see that um, there was this original form. So in verse 6 of chapter 2, the words, who being in the form of God, uh, refer back to that, being in the form of God. Okay, but then once the incarnation is entered into, things radically change, right? But it says here that in the mind of Christ, he didn't consider it, as it says, robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he already possessed um, everything, and he possessed the promise, right? Uh, so he's willing to give it up. It's, he's not going to cling on to it like a thief would in a, uh, who's robbing a home, right? 
taking things that do not belong to him. Uh, these things, these, these, these wonderful blessings, these manifestations of the glory, full glory of God, all uh, being uh, always equal with God, right, in, in the Trinity. Uh, all of this is a reality, even when Christ enters into uh, humanity, except the visible manifestation of it will be, to some extent, perhaps largely, you know, left behind, okay? But he has an expectation, right, that it will be regained. So it says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, okay? But now let's go on, and we, we now look at the seven degrees here. And there are seven, okay? Uh, and I just read two verses. It's all in, in those two verses that um, Patty just read a little bit earlier there. Uh, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Uh, now, by the way, if you number these, you can number one, two, three, down to seven, right? But made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, number seven of the seven. Okay? There's a great structure revealed here. I've, I've mentioned it before, but, but I haven't told you what I'm going to tell you now. Okay? Quickly, as we are going to get to all of these verses later as we study uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. But uh, what we see here, first of all, in verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 2, are those seven degrees of emptying, emptying, okay? Meaning giving, giving up the manifestation of who he truly was. Think of him being in Mary's womb for nine months and not manifesting his power and glory, right? Think of him being born as an infant in Bethlehem, right? In a manger, right? <laughs> in a, in a, a farm shack of some kind, right? Uh, I can't even imagine it, right? This is the Son of God <laughs> coming into human form in that way, right? Uh, so we have those seven degrees that we just read, right? And culminating with the death of the cross. But then that was not the end of the story, right? There was much more. Then we see Christ's exaltation. So in verses 9 through 11, we see his exaltation. And again, here are seven. Seven, seven. This number is repeated, right? And that marks the structure of Philippians to be very, very interesting indeed and special, right? So what are the seven exaltation degrees he says that the name the name above every name number one every knee shall bow number two things in heaven number three things in earth number four things under the earth number five every tongue confess number six and number seven that jesus christ is lord okay those seven follow along after the first seven first the suffering and then the glory, and this is pointing all the way down 
to the time when the at the great white throne judgment and uh, in in associated uh, and coordinated events things that had gone so far astray because of sin will be corrected right and you know about the new heavens and the new earth we've already spent much time looking at that um, but that's not the end of the story that's Christ's example right his suffering and then his glory but then Paul's own testimony will be put in the center focus here as Paul goes into chapters 3 and 4 of Philippians. And just to give you a preview of that, here are the sevens that correspond to the seven degrees of Christ's emptying. I would call this the seven degrees of Paul's confidence in the flesh, in the flesh, okay? Number one, circumcised the eighth day, eighth day. Number two, of the stock of Israel. Number three, of the tribe of Benjamin. Number four, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Number five, touching the law, a Pharisee. Number six, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Number seven, touching the righteousness of the law, blameless. The seven degrees of Paul's confidence in the flesh, right? All of this will be given up for something far better, right? And then we see the seven degrees of that uh, in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Number one, gaining the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Number two, being found in him not having the righteousness of the law. Number three, that I may know him. Number four, and the power of his resurrection. And number five, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And number six, being conformed unto his death. And number seven, the out-resurrection from among the dead. Okay? Uh, again, seven. So four times we see seven. That's the pattern. That's the structure of the letter of the Philippians. Some commentators have read Philippians, and these are, you know, well-known commentators, and said there's no structure at all in Philippians. It's stream of consciousness. They're so wrong in that. <laughs> to understand Philippians, we have to see the sevens multiplied four times. Okay. So that's what we have here as an explanation, really, of what it means to um, to uh, have this mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's so much. Um, I want to read from a commentator. I never do this. This is uh, one of the better commentators. His name is Johnson. Uh, <clears throat> He uh, published uh, many years ago uh, a book called The People's New Testament. And in that, he wrote some notes here for Philippians chapter 2 that I thought were uh, very well written and provide a great summary of what it was that Christ himself gave up, what his mind was like, what his mode of thinking was, when he realized it was the time to leap into humanity, right? And in the process of doing that, giving up so much that he had always had at the right hand of God the Father. Of course, 
always with the expectation of receiving far more back in return, right? So what does Johnson say? He says, of these words found here, emptied himself, he says, emptied himself, of the divine form and glory, and took the form of a servant of our own race, a race whose duty it is to serve God. The divine glory was exchanged for human lowliness. He humbled himself. Note the infinite condescension. Number one, the form of God and sharing the divine glory. Number two, he divests himself of this. Number three, nor nor does he then take the divine form or even the form of an angel, but of lowly, sinful man. Not with sin, but as if, right? Um, but this is not all, he writes. He not only takes the form of man, but the mortality of the flesh and dies. In other words, he's going to ultimately give over his own life, right? And physically give up the ghost and shed his own blood, right? Fully, right? And then finally he says, nay, more, he dies the most shameful and painful of all, all deaths even the death of the cross. So it's not just, he's not dying in battle or because of, of, of some assassin or something like this, right? He's dying the most shameful and painful of all deaths, even the death of the cross, okay? And you realize there was shame associated with that. Moses' law said, cursed is the man who dies that way, right? So Christ is willing to leave heaven's glory, come to earth, knowing that this is going to lead to him suffering for the sin of all of humanity in such a way that would fulfill the righteous requirement of Almighty God. Okay, so that's what we see there. Now, what about us? <laughs> I want to conclude today with that. What about us? We can't conclude without saying something about it. We already saw in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, how Christ himself will be exalted, right? Above every, every foe. Every enemy will be put down, right? Eventually. Well, what about us? How do we fit into this? Or do we? Well, the fact is that Christ's exaltation will also be ours someday. Now, we've talked about this before at some length here. Paul writes about this so very clearly in a number of places, but one place is, is in uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to ask Lisa just to read two verses in a moment. Those two verses precede what I'm reading now, but but a little later, after what Lisa will read, it says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. And we looked at this last time, in the time before, uh, in passing, but you might remember that. I hope you do. Paul says, our in verse 20 and 21, our conversation is in heaven, our manner of life, conversation, doesn't speak of words being spoken. It speaks of a whole manner of life of a person. Paul says, our conversation is in heaven. 
from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, our body of humility, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, literally the body, his body of glory, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Well, we saw from Philippians 2, he's going to subdue all things unto himself. Absolutely everything, even Satan himself, right? And what Paul is saying here is that as part of that whole thing, and as connected to it, in fact, as necessary for it, we must also be glorified and exalted together with Christ. That's Paul's confidence, right? Why is Paul willing to let Christ's mind be in him and to give up everything that he had, right, for the sake of the Lord? Why is he willing? Because of his confidence in the end point, in the rewards, right? Christ's own glorification demands ours as well. Because, how does he write it? I'm going to ask uh, uh, Lisa to read it. Lisa, if you're still able there to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Okay. 7 and 8 say, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Thank you, Lisa, that I may win Christ. That's the glorious future we look forward to, where we are seen by the whole creation as being together with our Lord Jesus Christ in a perfect, intimate bond that can never be broken. His glory will be shared with us. Our glory will be his. That's the way the plan is going to be completed, right? And this will go on for all eternity. Well, considering that, my... My exhortation to you is, considering that, and to myself, of course, are we willing to accept this challenge, right? <laughs> the exhortation was, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Two women in Philippi were asked to accept that, as was the whole assembly there, right? And by implication, we are asked to accept that. And each day, there's these challenges that present themselves, right? And what Paul is saying is that there's power in the exhortation, right? Keep it in mind, and through it, keep our Lord in mind. What was he willing to give up in heaven's glory, and what was his expectation of reward, right? We should think of it the same way. What are we asked to give up? And what is our expectation of reward, right? What was Paul asked to give up, and what was his expectation of reward? And as we go on in Philippians, you'll see that every believer will be glorified. There's no question about that. But there will be a difference. 
depending upon, you know, be degrees, in other words, of glory. And the way I like to think of it is how brightly will our lights shine? Because the more brightly they shine, the more Christ is glorified. And that will be determined based upon whether that mind which was Christ is willingly received as ours, whether we receive the abundance of his grace, and whether we rest in it, living out that newness of life day by day and moment by moment. Amen. May it be so. May it be so. Well, I've said what I wanted to say, and uh, I think uh, we can and should understand clearly exactly what Paul is writing about here in Philippians chapter 2 and 3, right? Praise the Lord. Any questions or comments uh, before we go to the Lord in prayer today? Hmm. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We do thank you. The, the word is uh, so great, so exalted, so far beyond us. Our minds, without your help, cannot comprehend these words. But with your help, their meaning is transparently clear. Father, I pray that the reality of our Lord Jesus uh, and what he has accomplished would encourage us uh, each day and each moment of each day that uh, that mind which was in Christ Jesus, willing to sacrifice so much, but with an expectation of so much more. Father, that, that he would ultimately jo be joined to his counterpart, which indeed includes us. So, Father, I thank you that uh, we have that expectation, and I pray that his mind would uh, be in uh, us as well as we would seek, Father, to honor and glorify you and to live that life which uh, uh, has been proven to us to be available and within our grasp, as it were. And we would thank you, Father, in Christ's name, and amen.